everyone welcome to talking research i am asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence, both in specific cases and more generally. If this is something that you find disturbing, please feel free to stop listening at any point. Today's guest is Thomas Kadri. Thomas is an assistant professor at the University of Georgia School of Law and he's a Mellon Fellow at Yale Law School, where he's pursuing his PhD. His research currently focuses on the rise of digital abuse and how people use network technologies to engage in harassment, stalking, privacy invasions and surveillance. So that's what we're going to be talking about today in this conversation and how tech companies can take on more responsibility and what they really need to be mindful of if they want to better respond to digital abuse that is facilitated through their platforms. If you need, there are links to organizations that support survivors in the podcast description. And if you have any feedback about the episode or the podcast in general, please feel free to reach out. All the social media and the email contact details are also in the podcast description. But that's everything from me. That's all the housekeeping. And let's dive in. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to Talking Research. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Um, I'm good too. I'm really excited to talk to you about, you know, your amazing article and tech facilitated abuse. So before we do that, how would you introduce yourself in a way that you like to be introduced? Um, sure. So I guess uh, I'm, a, I'm a researcher and, and a teacher. And my, my work focuses on the harms that are enabled by technology and particularly how how people use networked technologies and, and social media to engage in abuse and to violate other people's privacy. I guess that's kind of my research in a, in a nutshell. But, um, you know, by way of background, I, I work at the University of Georgia um, School of Law, where I, I teach cybercrime. I teach a seminar on, on digital abuse. And I also teach tort law, which is the, the law of, of private wrongs. Mm. And uh, uh, my accent, you know, uh, may be confusing to some of your your listeners. I'm kind of from all over the place. I was I was born in the United Kingdom, um, but I, you know, I have family from Lebanon, and and many of them live in in France, where I also sort of partly grew up. And now I mainly split my time uh, between the United States, uh, where I've lived for for about the last ten years, um, and mm. and Brazil as well, where my where my partner lives. So. Uh, kind of a nomadic existence, um, uh, but but that's kind of the background on me. Wow, I wonder how that's playing out during this pandemic when it's hard to travel and see family. I can tell you that it's very difficult, um, but you oh. know, uh, we're, we're all looking forward to a time when uh, when we can more easily travel. It'll be it'll be really wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. But until then, you know, let's talk about your work. How did you get into researching sexual violence, and also more specifically? tech facilitated sexual violence? Yeah, so it's been, um, I guess, you know, an interesting journey to, to, to lead me to, to the digital abuse work that I've most recently done. But I guess my first foray into this area was uh, through an article I wrote all about uh, the right of publicity, which 
is a, a, a tort that is recognized in the United States um, and in some other countries as well to prevent the unauthorized use of somebody's name or likeness or their image, right, without their consent. And I was very concerned about the rise of deep fake technology and non-consensual pornography and how these kinds of, you know, technologically perpetrated or technologically enabled harms were disproportionately affecting women in particular um, and, and just in general how there was this sort of forced sexualization uh, that these technologies were enabling and that tort law and the existing kind of precedent surrounding the, the right of publicity as, as a legal matter was maybe not going to provide protection for people who were, were victimized um, using these new technologies. And particularly in the United States, you know, as, as you may know, we have a very sort of rich free speech tradition, which in many ways I, I embrace and I celebrate, but in other ways it can, it can lead to some very difficult consequences when, when, you know, legislators want to step in and try and regulate the harms that are enabled by, by things that we might think of as, as speech. Um, mm. And so my, my article was an attempt to try and carve out uh, a way for these uh, types of harms to be regulated consistent with our First Amendment protections for the freedom of expression. Mm. And then really from there, my, my interest just kind of uh, burgeoned and I, I started looking much more at forms of private regulation that go on uh, on social media platforms and how they set the rules surrounding what speech is allowed to be said online, uh, external to law, right? These are all sort of private rules, um, uh, or at least ultimately they're, they're enforced by these private companies, um, but they can have a huge impact on, on abuse uh, online. Um, and so I did some work surrounding, you know, cyber harassment and other forms of, of, of harms committed on, on social media. Um, and then ultimately, this has led me to my current research agenda, uh, which looks at, at digital abuse, which is uh, sort of a term that I and others use to capture a, a broad variety of, uh, of harms that are enabled, uh, particularly by networked technologies, um, things like stalking and, and harassment, um, but also other forms of, of intimate privacy violations and, and harms that can be uh, enabled by, by technologies. Hmm. And what's a deep fake? I just want to, you know, ask you that in case anyone listening is not sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. I'm so steeped now in, in the lingo that, um, that sometimes I forget. But, but yeah, so a deep fake is uh, a form of usually audio or video that is manipulated uh, and it shows or, or, or sort of reveals somebody doing or saying something that they never did or said. Um, and the reason why it's called a deep fake is that it's it's a sort of a portmanteau word where it, it's combining the fact that it is a fake. Uh, it is not a real video or audio clip um, and that it is made through a, a form of AI, uh, the sort of deep learning techniques uh, to mm -hmm. allow a very realistic fake to be made. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of concern now about deep fakes and the political process and, and those concerns uh, certainly have some merit because a, a well-timed, you know, political deep fake showing a, a candidate for office uh, doing or saying something terrible that they never did or said could certainly have mm. huge uh, impacts. But the the reality is is that you know a, a huge majority of deep fakes that are out there and that are being made are pornographic deep fakes, 
Um, I'm not sure of the current statistics, but certainly one of the more recent statistics I saw was, you know, well above kind of 95% of, of these uh, of these deep fake videos are deep fake pornographic videos. And uh, almost 100% of those feature uh, women uh, as, as the people who are being portrayed in them. So it is a new vector of digital abuse that has kind of uh, you know, in some ways been added to something like non-consensual pornography or, or, or revenge porn, um, which a lot of people, you know, finally started paying attention to uh, just just as we started kind of grappling with the implications of revenge pornography, which, you know, is, is uh, sort of intimate images or video mm. that are shared without the person's consent, again, often using these kind of network technologies well, now we can add, unfortunately, uh, deep fakes to the list of, of these kind of sexually uh, related harms uh, that are enabled or perpetrated through technology. Mm, yeah. So deep fakes are an example of, you know, what digital abuse can look like. But, you know, there's other things, as you said, there's revenge porn and then there's unsolicited pictures of private parts that often women are sent. I'm just trying to think of examples. Absolutely. Yeah, no, th those are all certainly examples. And then really it can be, it can be quite capacious. And, and, and part of what my work is actually trying to do is that um, even though I think it makes sense to talk about digital abuse as a social phenomenon, um, it actually uh, can be unhelpful to think about digital abuse as a legal category. And, and the reason I say that is because very often, uh, you know, in an abusive relationship, for example, uh, there is a pattern of behavior, right, a course of conduct uh, that uh, we, you know, we think of as, as stalking, right? It, 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 it uh, provokes a, a fear uh, in somebody for their, for their safety. Um, and, and this sort of stalking or harassment can be done entirely using technologies, partly using technology, um, or, you know, or there can be no technology involved at all. Uh, each sort of abuse situation has its own distinct characteristics. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I think of digital abuse as being certainly including uh, the ways in which people will stalk others, right? Stalk their victims or harass their victims. Um, and that can really be a blend of using technology and not using technology. And so while I, I firmly believe that it makes sense to focus on digital abuse as a social phenomenon, to think about the ways in which digital abuse can be addressed or deterred, uh, I also you know, believe just as strongly that we shouldn't be segregating out digital abuse as something that is entirely divorced from the larger uh, abusive situations um, mm. in, in which this kind of conduct often, often arises. Because um, as we know, uh, it's so often intertwined uh, with physical abuse or with other emotional abuse or financial abuse. Yeah. And so it's important not to just treat it uh, in a silo and, and, and not link it to, to these other uh, forms of harms that are often going on. Absolutely. And I was going to ask you, what, what do we know about who is perpetrating the abuse? Who is doing the digital abuse? Do we know what, you know, for example, we know that for gendered and sexual violence faced by both men and women, most perpetrators are men. Is that also the case for digital abuse as far as we know? Yeah, so the, the research surrounding digital abuse is, is still, you know, fairly scant. Um, and, and part of the problem as well in terms of considering the, the genders of the perpetrators or, or the victims, right, 
is that there are real barriers to disclosure of a lot of this stuff. Mm. Um, and that's true, certainly, of, of sexual abuse more, more generally, right? But, um, but when it comes to digital abuse, you know, we do have some statistics um, surrounding how prevalent it is now, um, and some really quite, uh, quite startling ones, right? By, by some accounts now, about 95% of domestic abuse cases involve uh, some form of technology, um, and, and, and many people admit to having either suffered or perpetrated uh, quite serious abuse online. But there are, there are real barriers to, to uh, victims coming forward, both men and women, and, and often for, for sort of different reasons. Um, there is still a certain mm-hmm. amount of stigmatization and, and, and shame that, uh, that applies, I think, in all cases um, uh, surrounding being a victim of abuse. Uh, some of my work has looked particularly at how uh, social norms surrounding male victimization um, are, are going to stand in the way of us building a fuller picture of digital abuse. Um, men mm. will often feel discouraged from coming forward uh, or from admitting their victimization. Uh, and this in turn can, can harm not only you know, the men themselves or men more broadly, but can certainly be harmful to female victims as well. If this is seen as a women's only issue, uh, seen as something that, um, that, you know, only women, uh, experience that doesn't, that doesn't help anybody in the, in, in these, in these scenarios. And so part of my, my research is trying to kind of push back against that narrative and reveal, uh, a fuller picture of, of digital abuse, which, which certainly affects people, um, across the, the, the gender spectrum. Um, and, and in, and in different, uh, in different kind of relationship dynamics as well. Hmm. Do you think that if it's taken as an exclusively female issue or, you know, experienced exclusively by women, it'll be taken less seriously? Is that? That's certainly part of my concern. Yeah. So there's a, been a, been a long history of, of trivialization of harms that we consider, you know, society considers to be, um, more feminine harms. Uh, mm. or, or the types of uh, offenses or crimes or wrongs that are committed disproportionately against women. Uh, there's been, uh, at least in the United States, which is the, the setting in which I know, uh, um, a, a very long and unfortunate tradition of, of kind of trivializing those harms. And that can lead to all sorts of problems within the legal system of uh, under enforcement of laws. So even if we have laws on the books prohibiting certain harmful conduct, uh, those laws won't do much good if they if they lie unenforced. Um, and a big part of that story is is a story of uh, of trivializing harms that are that are disproportionately felt by women and and other marginalized folks. And so so yes, I think if it is seen as as something that is you know only or mainly uh, 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 experienced by by women. Then there can be ripple effects there that can be harmful not only for women but but for for victims um, across the board. I imagine it's uh, it's interesting to explore how it is interacting with this pandemic and you know with mm-hmm. more of more use of digital features and more use of softwares and you know Zoom meetings every day and all of that. I I imagine that'll be interesting to explore once we're through this. Definitely, yeah, and and you know we're already seeing some researchers who have who have been been trying to look into 
um, uh, you know, various metrics to, to figure out whether it is having an effect. And, and from what we've seen so far, there, there are some indications that it is. And, you know, one of the things about, about digital abuse and, and, the, and the types of, of abuse that I study, you know, it's often very socially complex in the sense that it involves very complicated interpersonal relationships between people. Um, and those relationships can be further complicated when two people are, are sort of confined uh, in, in a home for, for, in ways that they weren't before, right? And, and as we've seen uh, in a lot of places um, with, with various quarantining and lockdown measures, uh, people are spending a lot more time at home, cooped up with their technologies, yeah. with their partners, potentially with their yeah. partners. Um, and, and one of the things about digital abuse is that it's often not very sophisticated, right? It can be involving quite simple technologies that all of us are pretty familiar with. And the thing that allows it to become abusive, right? It's not, it's not that the technology itself is always abusive. In fact, a lot of these technologies can be used for good. Mm. But when a, an abusive partner has access to somebody's technology, um, maybe because they're spending a lot more time at home now, uh, it increases the opportunities for this kind of digital abuse to happen. And so that's something that I know certainly a lot of people who, you know, who work actively in, in the field uh, with victims and, and survivors uh, are particularly worried about in the current moment. Um, yeah. But I think more broadly than that, you know, yeah, you, you mentioned things like Zoom and just the fact that we are now living so much of our lives uh, online or through these sort of digitally mediated experiences and it does increase uh, the, the, the vectors for, for abuse. I mean, one thing that I, for example, with my class that I'm teaching right now, 30 of my students are online all the time. Uh, well, not all the time, but 30 of my students, you know, tune in by Zoom and 30 are in the classroom and, and those two groups rotate, right? Um, and, and I've had to be really clear with them that at no point are they to record or screenshot or take photos of the class, um, mm. especially those people who are kind of at home and tuning in from home. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people maybe would assume that I'm doing that because as the professor, I don't want to get, you know, embarrassed by something I say or, or you know, whatever mm. else. But, but one of the reasons that I give to my students is you don't know. You, one of your classmates um, might be in an abusive situation, might be the victim of a, a, a have been in the past the victim of abuse. Um, and they might not want uh, their abuser to get a, a, a view into their homes, into their private mm. lives, which are suddenly now mm. on show in a way that they never knew. And it may seem, you know, just because you don't mind giving strangers uh, or, or, or people, you know, a, a glimpse into your home and into your private life, that doesn't mean that other people don't have very serious concerns about that in a way that we used to be able to retreat into our homes and, and, and mm. feel generally safer there. Uh, now, often, uh, even our most sort of private spaces in our lives uh, are open to, uh, to scrutiny um, uh, through technologies. And that, that I think, is, is yeah. a real concern that we need to grapple with. Yeah, of course. So from here, I want to move on to this article that we're talking about today. And it's about how we can make tech platforms, you know, these big tech giants who are making these devices and these applications and you know the social media platforms and all of that how we can make them be more mindful of the digital abuse that happens on their platforms and 
before I ask you how we can do that, I want to ask you what do we know about the efforts that tech platforms are making or have made so far to combat abuse? Yeah, so um, you know the, the the history of their efforts in this space um, is certainly one of 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 sort of steady progression um, at, at taking these issues more seriously. I don't think anybody can can seriously dispute the fact that uh, many of these tech companies, particularly the largest tech companies that um, that currently kind of dominate the the, the industry. Um, at the start, you know, platforms like Facebook, for example, they really didn't take the idea of content moderation or of you know policing the 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 content or the speech that's going on on their platform all that seriously. They really stuck to this idea that oh, you know, we're just a a neutral platform that allows people to post things, and then uh, gradually over time they realized that that position was was untenable, right? Um, uh, mm. and not necessarily for for altruistic reasons, right? There are there are very clear business reasons why a platform like Facebook doesn't want all sorts of very offensive or harmful or shocking content on their website if it's going to make it not a place where people want to spend time, um, particularly sort of this kind of like family-friendly community type feel that Facebook will often uh, sort of uh, tout as as what it's trying to to create, right? Mm. And so, you know, over time, uh, they have developed uh, more and more this kind of body of rules and standards, right, that they call community standards uh, to govern the type of content that's allowed uh, to be to be put on on Facebook. And I, I'm using Facebook here as an example, but but most of the the major platforms have some variation uh, of, of of these rules now. Um, and often, you know, the first time uh, things that we might think of as, you know, most clearly tied to, to, to digital abuse, contemporary digital abuse, uh, a lot of the initial rules were surrounding things like cyberbullying um, and cyber harassment, right? Because uh, all of a sudden, uh, minors were using these sites and, and, and really hurtful things were being put on them and parents were upset and, the, you know, the kids were upset. And, and so through a variety of these types of, of harms and the responses to them, the platform started developing different policies about what they would do with this kind of content, right? They still have uh, a long way to go, uh, both in the sense that I think they could be doing more given what, what the current state of play is, um, but also because this, these types of technologies and the types of harms that people uh, you know, perpetrate through them uh, are, are rapidly evolving, right? And so it's always going to be a constant work in progress. But they are, you know, they are at least more aware of these harms now, and they do at least consult with experts um, and 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 sometimes with victims to try and figure out how their technologies are being used in in harmful ways. Uh, whether they're doing enough is 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 another matter, and something that I I certainly try and, and discuss in in my in my work. But they are they are at least being pushed now by a lot of people to take these types mm. of harms more seriously. Mm. And what would that look like, you know, when they're being more mindful of the abuse that their platforms facilitate? What would that mindfulness look like when they're designing the features and they're trying to prevent that? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, there are certainly um, uh, like specific steps that they could take. If you, you know, if you were to, to talk to me about a, a particular feature that's on one of these platforms, um, you know, we could talk about the specific ways that they might make it uh, less likely to be to be abused. But 
you know, as I just said, the, the, the fact that these features are often changing quite so quickly, I think it's also helpful to think more generally about the structural and institutional steps that these platforms could take so that they can adapt to, to the changing landscape. And something that I've uh, kind of pitched in my work is this idea of, um, you know, empathy by design, right? And so the idea behind empathy uh, is that you are attempting to put yourself in another person's shoes and attempt to feel how they might feel. Um, and this is, uh, you know, challenging work at times, because especially if you don't have personal experience being, let's say, victimized um, uh, or, or abused, right, that it can be very difficult to put yourself in a victim's shoes and, and, and understand their experience, or at least try to understand their experience, right? But I think it's essential that these platforms and these technology companies um, try and cultivate these, uh, these impulses, these empathetic uh, impulses when they are designing their products to imagine uh, how they are going to be used and how people might be affected by them and particularly how people might be harmed by them, right? And so mm-hmm. part of what I've urged is that uh, a technology companies certainly should be trying to hire diversely. Um, mm-hmm. As we know, uh, uh, this kind of abuse is, is disproportionately faced by marginalized groups, particularly by women, but, but also um, by LGBTQ folks um, and, and racial and ethnic minorities, right? And so it's, it's important mm. that the people who are designing these, these products and setting the policies for them uh, uh, are, are a diverse group, right? Um, but more than that, uh, companies need to be hiring uh, uh, victims of abuse and consulting with victims, groups, and, and, and advocates um, to really try and understand the implications of the technologies that they are putting out there. It's just uh, not an adequate response to just say, oh, we're a technology company. We just make technology and then we put it out there and then you know people use it as they use it. That is, um, uh, in my view, just an, un- an unacceptable uh, response yeah. now that we know how these technologies, you know, can and, and and will be used to do harm. And part of my idea of of empathy by design is that companies should be thinking structurally about how not only they should be hiring and, and firing and training with an eye towards breeding these empathetic impulses, um, but also how there should be checks along the way uh, to make sure that the products that they are designing, that they're putting out there, are really grappling with the dynamics of abuse and how uh, these the technologies that they're creating might be might be used uh, in abusive situations. Yeah, and you give this example of you know in your article about how there was this woman who went on a date with this man and he and she didn't use her real name but because of the people you may know feature on facebook he found her i think that's a really good example of how such a feature that's meant to connect people can be misused and can be used to violate someone's privacy that's right yeah and 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 i mean that example as well one of the reasons why i i I draw it out is i think it it can show uh, how there can be improvements on the micro level and on the macro level, right? Because on, on just looking at that specific feature, right, it could have been designed in a different way uh, to try and prevent that kind of 
unintentional harm, right? Nobody thinks that Facebook did that intentionally. They didn't want to connect abusers to them, yeah. right? But but that's, you know, in some ways, that's beside the point. Uh, uh, they still could have designed that particular feature uh, in, in a more empathetic way. But then if we also zoom out and we think about, all right, what led Facebook to create such a feature? Well, we can kind of draw a pretty clean line between the people you may know feature and Facebook's broader company mantra, which at least at that mm-hmm. time, I believe, was making the world more open and connected, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what Facebook seeks to do as a company. That's its corporate mantra, or again, that's at least what it what it was, I think, at the time. And that is a contestable maxim, right? That mm-hmm. is something that I think Facebook should be forced to defend, whether that is uh, what we want. And yeah, sure, it's it's just a company slogan. Um, and people might, I think, understandably think, well, how important is that ultimately, you know, Facebook just exists to make profits and, and that's what's going to drive it. Um, and I'm sympathetic to that view. But having spoken to a lot of people who work at these technology companies and, and having gained a bit of a sense, uh, yes, of course, there are, you know, many people within those companies who, who want to make profits, right? They need to satisfy their shareholders and, 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 and all of those forces are at play. But a lot of them really believe in what they're doing and in the corporate mantra. And when they're thinking about the products that they design and how they design them, they often do go back to those slogans and those buzzwords or what the company is supposed to be doing. And, uh, and it's very clear that many people right up to the top, including and perhaps especially uh, Mark Zuckerberg, really are firmly committed to this idea that greater connection is always a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that kind of uncritical uh, view of the, the the power of communications technologies that can so often facilitate and enable uh, abuse, um, mm-hmm. going right down to that that micro level uh, of the people you may know feature. This just shows how the policies that they're developing, even though they might be well intentioned, they are not survivor-centric, you know, knowing what we know about gender violence and sexual violence, how prevalent it is everywhere in the world, such a feature can be misused. And, you know, I actually hadn't thought of this before. I read your article and now it makes so much sense that, wow, you know, this is something that can be so easily misused. And if they, you know, spent that energy and effort on consulting survivors and, you know, just understanding patterns and how their technologies are misused, so it sounds like things could be better, but you know that makes me think about another thing that you're talking about in your article that even though these companies know that they should be doing better if if that does not coincide with the profit making or you know making their features more attractive for the general public, they're not gonna do it because end of the day it's about making their product more lucrative, right? So how do we make these companies incorporate that empathetic thinking and how how do we sort of make them take on that responsibility when really what they're mostly working for is creating more profit for shareholders? Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a major challenge to anybody, myself included, who's trying to encourage these companies to, um, you know, to behave with more thought um, and, and, and more empathy towards victims, right, is that ultimately, they exist 
to, to make their profits, um, and mm-hmm. and they in some ways have a legal obligation, right? To, to not just in some ways they do have a legal obligation to to maximize uh, value for their shareholders, right? Um, but the reality is is that uh, you know companies have a a quite significant degree of latitude to uh, uh, make business decisions that will not only affect their kind of short-term profits, but also think about things in the slightly longer term. And there's definitely latitude for companies to say, well, sure, this might make us a buck to design our you know, product in this way. But if we do that, there could be all of these ripple effects. Um, and, and, and chief among them, especially when it comes to, to issues of abuse, is this could create a real PR disaster for us, right? Even if it's still put in the language of self-interest, um, the companies want to make sure that people don't think that they're evil uh, mm. companies doing bad things. Even if we just put it in the, in the terms of their self-interest, there is a way, I think, to try and, and and push these companies to do better, right? And then when mm. they don't, to try and hold them accountable. Now, you know, I think um, some people listening to, to, to kind of a message like that might think me terribly naive, like, oh, you know, these companies, that we, we have no power to hold them accountable. They're often hiding what they're doing in ways. And, and all of that is true, right? That there is a lack of transparency um, and researchers often have very little insight into what's going on on these platforms, which makes it much harder to, um, to use the threat of, of bad PR against them. Mm. Um, but but, but there, there are things that we can do, right? There, there, there are stories that we can tell. And one of the things that I've tried to do in my scholarship is to really emphasize the role of personal narrative and in victims sort of sharing their stories. Um, and, and even if it's hard for us to, you know, for example, conduct widespread studies to investigate the extent of abuse on these platforms, we can still certainly rely on the personal narrative and, and sort of stories of victims to reveal the ways in which these technologies are being used to do harm and to use that to try and encourage uh, companies to do more. And, and, and we're already seeing the effects of this in, 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 in some cases, right? And so uh, shareholder groups uh, are becoming more willing, I think, to try and push back against mm-hmm. the actions of these uh, companies and say, yeah, sure, you have to, to, to attempt to make a profit here, but you should also be taking into account all of these harms that you're enabling. And we are going to try and move against you as a group of shareholders to make sure that you do, right? Um, and so it's, it's not easy. Um, but I think that to, to also to throw up our hands and say, oh, it's helpless. These companies are always just going to act in their own self-interest. And that is always going to lead to more abusive technologies is also giving up a little too easily. There are things that we can do. And, and I believe there are things that we should do to, to push them to do better. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a really valuable perspective because we know that legal systems are years behind on dealing with digital abuse and all the nuances of technology that are really developing every day. So in that scenario, it's even more important for us to question and to, you know, as you said, try to hold these tech companies to account. So yeah, I, I think I, I really agree with you on that. and. Yeah. 
yeah and i think there's also some social capital for these companies in combating this abuse no, i know that we're both we both are obviously advocating for tech companies to take digital abuse seriously you know regardless of what serves them by doing that it's just the right thing to do but i think as you said for their self interest there is another pro to that so yeah and one thing i'd i'd say i guess in response to that last point that you made is that for me that sort of social capital point makes it even more important to have competition in this industry right and mm. this is something that i've written about in in other areas of my work not so much focused on digital abuse but i think it certainly has an effect on or can have an effect on digital abuse which is that if we have too much concentration in this industry if there's only you know one or two major players in the social media industry then we lose perhaps one valuable source of leverage which is companies not wanting to do things that could make them look bad compared mm. to their competitors right yeah and so yeah. um as we see this kind of consolidation and centralization that's going on in the in the social media industry i think there are you know many people are rightly concerned about you know the effects for example on on public discourse and on political speech when there's consolidation or when it comes to things like amazon on on the you know effects of of, of commerce and and markets right but i also think that it can have ripple effects for digital abuse and other forms of kind of online harms when a social media company maybe will will think to itself well sure you know we could we could mess up here um but that's not going to cause our users to go elsewhere because there's nowhere else for them to go they have no choice if they want to keep using these services um and in another area of my work something that i'm i'm looking at are the forms of collaboration um that go on between social media companies and how there are some uh, moves and forces to try and basically create industry wide standards or industry wide bodies um to to hear appeals and and other you know uh, other kind of disputes uh, arising out of these platforms um and i'm really skeptical and 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 sort of uh, concerned about some of these moves uh in so far as they might lead to this homogenization and centralization of 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 power these sort of structural forces um mm. that you know if everybody's on the same page and agrees what the standards should be and agrees what the technology companies should be doing well sure it makes sense to have a uniform set of rules if we've figured out what yeah. the best approach is like that sounds great but the reality mm-hmm. that we live in is far more complicated than that um and and i'm much more in favor of having uh uh different corporate uh, uh entities kind of competing with each other to be the platform that isn't going to invade users privacy that is going to set up better mechanisms to prevent abuse on its platforms. And I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, most users are going to choose their social media platform based on those factors. But at least it gives us a way to sort of say, oh, you know, Facebook, Twitter is doing this, why aren't you doing this? Oh, but Google has now taken this step and is doing this. And then if 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 we can have more players kind of involved in yeah. this and give users more choice, uh then i think it at least gives us another form of leverage even if it is just in the form of kind of social capital or or pr mm. yeah basically monopoly is bad 
<laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah it can be bad for all sorts of reasons but i think for you know for this this is another this is another way in which um this kind of consolidation can be troubling yeah of course and you know for any mark zuckerbergs or jack dorsey's listening right now um <laughs> what recommendations do you have really quickly sort of what they can do to combat digital abuse practical things that they probably aren't focusing on now but should yeah i mean i think i'll go back a little bit to some of the things i said before which is really that you know we often focus on these technologies in this abstract sense it's like is this a harmful technology um mm. but but really we should be refocusing on the human element in in a couple of ways right one is thinking about all right how are people going to use these technologies in ways that could be harmful right rather than than thinking is a technology in itself harmful or not right and if we put this human focus back on it how are people going to use it and how is it going to affect other people right that's usually a a good start right and then there's another way in which the kind of human component i think is really important and that goes back to what i was saying about uh, hiring diversely and consulting diversely and consulting with victims and trying to actually see how technology can be used to perpetrate abuse right at the end of the day we can talk about facebook as this sort of singular corporate entity but facebook is made up of the people who work for it who design the products who craft the policies who enforce the rules um mm. and so the identity of the people inside that company who are making those really important decisions is very important and if all of them look and sound and and have the same world view as Mark Zuckerberg well then you're going to have one type of company um mm. but if uh if efforts are made to really kind of bring in people of different perspectives then i think that's going to help the company uh make decisions that are more empathetic that really struggle with how uh uh complicated uh many people's experiences are with these network technologies and how they can mm-hmm. be a source of great harm to people's lives in a way that again right it doesn't need to, we don't need to say that facebook is acting maliciously or that facebook employees are acting uh uh you know really with evil towards towards abuse victims often it's just carelessness and carelessness can come mm-hmm. from that lack of perspective that lack of experience um that makes it really hard to empathize with victims and so you know i i would i would encourage you know mark and jack if you're listening uh um to really think uh you know to to think about how you're going to put in place these structural forces to try and create uh more empathetic products um yeah. not just think about in the short term right what's a cool new feature that we can do but really struggle with how it's going to be used and how it might affect people yeah and what you said earlier hire diversely you know li- listen to survivors and bring survivors into the room and ask their experiences and how your features have been used to victimize them and keep that in mind while you design these features absolutely and, and 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 if i might i i'll just say that you know it seems particularly um uh, uh sort of salient to point out now you know you're you know you're based in india i'm based here in 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 the us um uh you know we have connections to various parts of the world right abuse is not this homogenous thing that happens the mm. same worldwide and so it's also really important to think about geographic diversity 
and, and to really think about how a lot of these technologies are being used in very different parts of the world and particularly how it's playing out in the global south. And mm. there are, um, uh, you know, a lot of these larger tech companies, I think, are finally starting to, to take that thought more seriously. Mm. Uh, but they still, I think, have a long way to go. And, yeah. and, and really trying to figure out how their technologies are not just being used uh, within the markets that they know best, often within the US, right? Um, but how they're being used where, for example, you know, in some countries, uh, Facebook is the main form of, of internet uh, that people are using, right? It's their main access to information. Or in other parts of the world, WhatsApp is really the main source yeah. of communications technology. Um, and the way that it's used, the norms uh, surrounding use of that technology are very different from country to country mm -hmm. or from region to region. And so gaining that kind of insight in terms of the diversity within the company is also absolutely crucial um, if, if, if digital abuse is going to be addressed you know, comprehensively. These are global companies that have set up global communications technologies. And so they yeah. need to, to take that seriously as well. Yeah, yeah, especially in India, because it's really burgeoned, you know, the, the amount of people who, who have access to smartphones and who have access to WhatsApp and Facebook is really burgeoned in the last I'd say a couple of years and, you know, absolutely these companies have that responsibility to check misuse. But um, I want to ask you, how does doing this research interact with your mental health and, you know, your emotional well-being? Sort of how do you keep that balance? It is honestly um, a, a challenge, right? A, a constant challenge. Mm. Um, and as I talk about in, in the Networks of Empathy piece that, that we've been discussing today, you know, I am myself a, a victim of digital abuse. Um, and, and in part, that has what has inspired and motivated me. And I think given me, uh, painful as it has been, some perspective that I've tried to, to, to share through my scholarship. Um, and so it can at times be a very difficult and, and triggering experience to do this work. Um, and it's something that I, I, I work really hard on um, to try and, and, and do in a way that is healthy. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's a struggle, right? And there are times where mm -hmm. I just have to give myself uh, a break from it and to say, okay, right, to, today is not a day where I, can, uh, where I can really focus on this work. I'm going to focus on something else um and 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 do that but you know one of the ways that i try and, and and create kind of positive conditions for myself is to focus on the ways in which i can hopefully try and help people uh with this you know with the perspectives that i've got um and that motivation at least is uh kind of soothing for me and and, and cathartic for me to be able mm. to to do and so try and take some of those difficult and painful experiences and e even even when I'm not talking about my own personal experience right just the the act of of kind of being immersed in this kind of literature or listening to victim stories and trying to uh, think about them can be draining um, but ultimately trying to to think about all right well what is the good that that can be done with this uh, how can I lend my voice um, to these efforts and try and create something good. That's, that's something that certainly helps me manage some of the more emotionally draining parts of, of doing this work. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's really empowering to listen to. And, you know, I'm really grateful that you're doing this work. It's so, so important. 
No, I'm grateful for, for, for what you're doing with this podcast as well. I think it's, no, really, I, I think it's wonderful. And I, I really appreciate you giving me the chance to, to share it with you and, and to share it with, with your listeners. Not at all. But, you know, it's, it's really just, it's really amazing to have you. But if I can ask you one final thing, do you have any practical advice that everyone listening can do to combat sexual violence, you know, gender violence, abuse in any form on their own level? Just one practical thing that we can all do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think talking openly about the reality that, that many people face this kind of abuse, whether it's digital abuse, whether it's some form of gender-based violence, not making it so taboo, I think is going to be a huge part of efforts to try and change norms in this space, right? There's, as we kind of talked about today, there's only so much that technology companies can do. There's only so much that law can do. Um, a lot of this is going to come down to kind of changing social customs and mm. not having this form of these forms of abuse be sidelined or trivialized. Um, and so part of that, I think, is talking openly about it, right? Not making it such a form of, of social taboo or shame um, and encouraging people when they want to come forward and tell their stories um, and, and, you know, believing victims, giving them the benefit um, of, of your belief and listening to them. Uh, is going to be a really important part of this, not making it just somebody else's problem, right? Oh, that's mm. something that happens to other people. That doesn't happen to me. Um, and I guess I'll just end on on a note, something that I, I really stress in, in the piece um, is that men need to be a really important part of this, right? This, this can no longer be something that is just left to other people uh, who are more often victimized in this way, right? It's really important that um, that other people are kind of brought into the fold and particularly that men step up and grapple mm. with the gender dynamics of a lot of this abuse, um, mm. both in the sense that uh, uh, men are often abusers, but, but men are also often victimized um, and grappling with their role on both sides of the abusive relationship is really important. And so I guess my, my parting call, if I have one, is, is, to, is, is, for, is for them to really, you know, for men to really uh, step up and become part of, of trying to address these forms of abuse as well. That, that's an amazing parting call. And I think, I hope they take this on seriously. And I think they have a great inspiration in you as well. So thank you so much for joining me, Thomas. And thank you for your amazing work. And I, I hope you're able to travel soon and see your family all over the world very soon. Thank, thank you. you. I really appreciate it. Have, have a good one.